0: Welcome, everyone, to The Lift. This is episode 23, and I am Tyra Sellers, and with me is... Linda LeBlanc. Yay, Linda. You just get the two of us again for this episode. We're going to continue talking about some of the special topics from the workbook series. And today, we're going to be speaking about... Um, effective teaching using behavioral skills training and ongoing monitoring and performance management as two critical repertoires for an effective supervisor. And we'll cover those two skills and remind you all that this is the section for the consulting supervisor and new supervisor where we are talking about different specific skills that would be selected from the self-assessment and assessment and that would be planned out together for that new supervisor. So the first Special topic that we're going to talk about today really is um, focusing on ensuring that the new supervisor has in their repertoire effective skills around teaching others, but also knows how to teach their trainees how to effectively use BST. So it's a little meta, right? Like we want the new supervisor to be really, really great with their skill sets but also be effective at teaching how to teach. So Linda, do you want to talk a little bit about um, how you think about those two different pieces? And then we can dive into why we really want to highlight behavioral skills training and effective teaching. Absolutely.
1: Well, you know, I think we can get fooled by the fact that Um, the people that we are training are verbally competent adults that have learned lots of things. And we rely on them being amazing learners Mm -hmm. and dig in less to being amazing teachers. Mm -hmm. And we kind of fall back on the just telling (laughs) and equating telling and teaching. And we would never do that with a client who had significant verbal or cognitive deficits, but we tend to do it with our colleagues and supervisees in spite of the fact that the literature says it really doesn't work. (laughs) And the fact that we tend to do it means new supervisors are also going to tend to do it. So it's not only about getting that new supervisor to change their interactions and their training behavior to more fully represent effective training, it's also important to get them to understand that they were tempted or maybe had already been doing it a different way. And that trainee who's going to be a new supervisor, maybe in two years, would be likely to do the same thing, to make that same mistake. So this is meta, but it's such a great opportunity to kind of make that point of connection of even if you're relatively new at this and you've had an insight about, oh man, I was about to not be behavioral (laughs) about this part of my job. You can share that insight Mm -hmm. to your supervisees and trainees And try to help them realize that same insight that being behavior analytic isn't just about the teaching interactions that you have with a child with autism or a client with a head injury. It is also about every interaction that you have with staff. Mm -hmm. And I think you have to re-encounter that over and over and over again to realize how easy it is to tell rather than teach. So telling is just saying the thing that you'd like done. (laughs) But teaching is really about giving specific instruction and rationale and showing and ensuring that the new skill is there. So it's one of those things. How do you know you've taught someone something? You know, how do you know you've trained them? They can now do the thing accurately and you won't get to that level of confidence if you're just telling. So to me, that's a huge difference between telling and teaching. And we want both levels of the new supervisor and that trainee to kind of reach that insight.
0: Yeah, I think that um, you said so much in there that is great. And I want to just highlight. Um, what you started with, which was sort of talking about, we're susceptible to this. And I think one of the reasons that we're susceptible, meaning kind of falling to the just telling, um, I think one of the reasons that we're susceptible as I reflect on failed opportunities to do a better job teaching in the past, in my experience, is partly because I experienced a lot of just being told and Eventually, I had the skills, but what I never reflected on was, was the telling really the thing that drove my my skill acquisition, or was it that I then just sort of had to dig in and do it, and there was a lot of trial and error, which meant there was wasted time, there was possibility for harm or ineffective use of whatever it was i was trying to do um as well as the potential of some false positives where like i think i've got it but i don't really got it and so yeah. i i really love that reminder that we are susceptible to that not only because it's less effortful and because it's been modeled for us but because we may perceive that it's beneficial to shape our behavior or others behavior but that's Uh, That's not a full investigation of what actually happened, right? Absolutely. And, you know, there is intermittent
1: reinforcement because the most capable learners, the most capable supervisors and or supervisees and trainees get most of it from telling and then their behavior gets shaped by the effects. But here's the thing. They hardly needed you anyway. The best ones <laughs> need you to not get in their way. Almost everybody else needs you to be effective. And so some of that more casual telling gets differentially reinforced yeah. by the most capable learners. And to be honest with you, lots of grad school select for the most capable sure. learners, because yeah. they know that they're going to be doing mostly just telling, <laughs> but the, the, the value of the teacher is how well they do with all the rest. Yes.
0: yes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. A you
1: students know what, are going to be yeah. A students. If you're a great teacher, you're turning B, C, D, Fs into A's and B's, that's when you know you're really using a technology of teaching in a meaningful way. Preach
0: that because I have (laughs) heard countless times people say to me, well, I'm a really good supervisor to really good trainees or (laughs) clinicians." Like, well, awesome. That's great. But I need you to be a really good (laughs) supervisor to... Just your regular flavor trainee and your regular flavor clinician, because that's what we have the most of. And, if, and we can get them to the extra sparkly, fantastic flavor with your effort. That's not their job. That's your job as the supervisor. So I love that you said that um, and that we have a technology we can lean on to be effective in that endeavor in most instances. So
1: absolutely. Well, and you know what the literature says about that technology, behavioral skills training, is that if you only provide instructions, you are going to get about 50 to 70% of the skills you are trying to teach, uh, depending on what they are and how complicated they are they'll get about 50 to 70% acquisition. If you stop there and that's the highest they get to and it degrades from there, (laughs) you've got a real problem because you may feel like, oh, well, I trained them. They should be at 100%, but they never were at that point. And, And this includes studies on using... Just the kind of instructions or instructions and modeling component of BST mm-hmm. to teach behavior analysts, you know, technicians and BCBAs mm-hmm. various skills like how to implement preference assessments or DTT or that kind of thing. So it's like you really got to add in these other critical components like modeling and rehearsal and feedback to criterion
0: if you want to get good performance. Yep. Yep. And the last thing that you said, the two criterion for me is one of the things that gets dropped first with BST. It's like, no, I totally described it and I gave them a rationale. I modeled it and we role-played great, can I please see the data that suggests that you picked a mastery criterion ahead of time and that you measured in those role play and practice opportunities that they actually achieved it? No, well, like they were just able to do it. Like, mm, mm, nope.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And were they able to do it consistently? I think that's the other thing is, you know, we want to hold the same High standard for accuracy and fluency for our staff that we would for our clients. We would never stop after a child manded one time. <laughs> you know, oh, look, they did it. Now they can man. You know, uh, we would continue to uh, take data and potentially provide prompting as needed. And we would expect that sometimes it might not go well, even after they've done it correctly one time, but we seldom hold that same standard with our staff. And we also seldom think about generalization. That is, you know, we almost any skill we use, whether it's shaping, chaining, data collection, uh, prompting, We use it for a variety of different kinds of programs and a variety of different contexts with a variety of different clients, but we don't always necessarily use rehearsal and feedback, whether role plays or with clients across enough situations to ensure that we've caught the times when it won't go well. Mm -hmm. I mean, So data collection, any data collection is about proving that, yes, you've done what you think you've done, but also finding where you might not have gotten there yet. Mm -hmm. You've got to actively look for where there might be mistakes or where there might be a lack of understanding, not just try to find one situation where they can really do the skill well because life's
0: going to throw at them all of the other ones. That's right and and I think you can get at that by um, thinking about the terminal context within which someone has to use the skill or the different contexts and then build that into your modeling and your role play so you can start with the most optimal conditions running a preference assessment where your person is, you know, has both hands in their lap and they're reaching with one hand and there's no problem behavior. But then eventually you need to have some models and some practice opportunities where someone is reaching with both hands, where they're clearing the items, where they're throwing the items, because I don't know about you, but that's real life for me. Like preference Mm -hmm. assessments are kind of the best scenario because it's, you know, low demand and lots of good stuff, but they often go sideways quick. And I think if we aren't training using BST in a structured way to capture kind of all of those different potential real life scenarios that we're doing folks a disservice, what are your thoughts on that? I absolutely agree with that.
1: And I also think we probably think too narrowly about what we could teach using BST. So one of the things about every one of our special sections is we include a a portion on how to teach those skills. And I can remember when we were first talking about it, I was like, so are we really just gonna describe BST for every daggum one of these skills? People know to use BST and you were like, well, maybe not. (laughs) Maybe we should actually outline you know, what skills they would be looking for and what context, you know, so you, yes, you can use BST not only to teach implementation of behavioral procedures, but to teach problem solving, to teach evaluation of scope of competence, to Mm -hmm. teach therapeutic relationship skills So it is uh, to teach people how to write
0: effective um, soap notes or session, interpersonal communication skills, like difficult conversations, you name it.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, different kinds of skills, like if you are going to be teaching someone interpersonal skills, uh, therapeutic relationship skills, active listening skills, it's important to have some video models. Mm. So the models really are critically important. And I happen to like video models because often they can remain available to the person who's going to be learning and using the new skills three, six, eight months after the original training occurred. So anytime you're teaching someone to do something that they might not need to do tomorrow, Mm -hmm. If you've got some of those video models permanently available, they can always check back in on that and, you know, get that same modeled experience, which will often remind them of the core components. So live models are also great and they're a great way to introduce variability, but there are lots of things that I like about incorporating uh, video models for for some of the more subtle skills that um, we might need to teach.
0: I agree with you. And I like that point that if you're not likely to have to do it frequently enough to you know, engage in the responses and have that become fluent. It's great to have that. I think about in cooking, you know, I've got recipes that I cook all the time and I can do them off the top of my head and others that I only do once or twice a year. And I have to go back to that recipe and walk through before I, um, before I, I actually make the thing. So I love that. I also like video models because you can pause them and talk about what happened or didn't happen or should happen so much easier than you can a live role play. So I'm, I'm definitely team video model. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And in terms of like the recipe for me, the equivalent to that is a bulleted task list or job aid for, you know, like keeping it to chunks of doable steps helps with remembering, but it's also helpful to have a great list or infographic, even of just the names of the steps, to have that there as a reminder. So it's one of the ways that you can improve your instructions component, your modeling component, and then with the rehearsal and feedback to criterion it's really do you know exactly what needs to be done? It's not a general impression of goodness. Yes. It, we wouldn't want to do that with our clients and we shouldn't do that with our staff. It should be based on data collection. And um, and in doing so, collecting the specific data, it allows you to give more specific feedback mm-hmm. that you are not likely to do. And it reminds you to give the feedback on the things that were exactly right, as well as maybe even the small things that could be tweaked the next time. So it's always a good time to collect some data. I
0: agree about that. I, I think as we As we wrap up talking about behavioral skills training, I wonder if you can just speak on, because we're, so we're defining and talking about behavioral skills training, why it's great. And that, you know, as new supervisors, we need to know about it. We need to be able to use it, 100% agree. The next component for a new supervisor is you not only have to use BST with your trainees and supervisees, you have to teach your trainees how to use BST with whomever, maybe other RBTs or something like that, as they move along through the accrual of their field work experience hours, because when they become a supervisor, using BST is going to be one of their primary tools. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, you know, like, like as a, as a new supervisor, what, how would you tackle that piece? Like you're, you're, you're an expert at BST, you use BST, but how do you tackle teaching BST trainee?
1: You know, I always like to start with a light bulb going off. (laughs) And so like, oh man, that's why that was good Mm -hmm. so sometimes immediately after I just use BST to teach something else whatever it might be Mm -hmm. you know like we're gonna focus on writing up this part of a report summary and I give the instructions and I kind of model how I'm doing it oh I think I want to phrase it this way and now okay you you practice it you do these next couple of things, a little bit of feedback. Well, What do you think about that word choice? And they fix it. And then, so, okay, that was about learning to write a report. And then I say, you know, I just used BST to teach you how to do that. Tell, Identify those components for me. Boom. I just BST'd you. I just BST'd you. And so then they're like, oh, so is the job aid, is the instructions? Yes. That and everything I'm saying. And then the modeling was when I was typing. And, but when you had to get in there and do your part and then, and, and then usually it's like, oh yeah. And then this and this and this, and it kind of all becomes real clear to them. And I kind of then start the BST on using BST and say, the reason I did that rationale for using BST is because you're going to have to do this task a lot and I want you to do it well. Mm -hmm. And I want you to feel comfortable that you've had the opportunity to try it, get feedback, ask questions So that when an independence opportunity comes along, you're more likely to succeed. And if you don't, you'll might notice where the errors are. Mm -hmm. So I could have just given it to you with kind of a general description and had you try it, but that probably would have been a less effective and a less enjoyable learning experience for you. So now tell me how you're going to use VST with this other person. So I kind of tend to establish it as, oh my gosh, I'm a little bit less scared of writing this report now. Yay. Here's probably why and why it was a good thing that I took the time and effort to do that with you. It's going to pay dividends. Tell me about a different skill that you could teach your person
0: to use BST. I love that. I love that. And then typically what I will do is ask the person at some point after that to, um, prep some training materials on a particular skill for a particular audience. And then I will use a checklist to see, do you have a rationale? Is your explanation clear and appropriate for your audience? Have you mapped out some role play ahead of time? Have you mapped out your modeling ahead of time? Do you have a predetermined criteria? Do you have a, you know, procedural integrity checklist that you're going to use when you're watching them in their role player practice opportunities. Um, so I think that, that, that sequence of kind of they're experiencing it, you sort of pull back the curtain and let them know what they were experiencing. You talk about how they could use it. They talk about how they could use it. And then you have them do it in a structured way is like, that's the whole meal all together.
1: And then I think ongoing, as they start doing some of that, one of the questions, kind of an open-ended question mm-hmm. that I like to ask that kind of um, might help them realize that they might not have fully BST'd it <laughs> is is, um, how do you know you're done with training? Mm-hmm. And uh, like a lot of times you immediately jump to like, well, I did it. Right. I did my 60 minutes. <laughs> right and the the real answer is always based on direct observation of effective performance under implementation conditions maintained not tra- maintained over time yes and so that kind of leads into the second special topic of ongoing monitoring and performance management there are definitely things that i've learned to do that i don't can't do accurately two or three years later. Like I swear I've learned to crochet four times and then like, you know, a year later, look at that. I can't crochet. I got to relearn that. And so that's about sustainability of excellent performance.
0: Yes, you're absolutely right. And I think um, in a similar way that we are susceptible to leaning on just telling versus actually teaching we are also likely to lean on well I trained them how to do it now we're good and if a problem arises somehow I will know Uh, and there are many risks um, involved in that you know um, you're gonna have drift and that drift can in from one person can even infect other performers, right? I mean, I I start doing something slightly different because it's easier for me or whatever. And Linda looks over and sees me doing that way. So Linda starts doing that way. Um, It can make your evaluation sort of of um, the data difficult if you aren't sure that everybody is implementing things in exactly the same way. Um, When you've got multiple folks For example, implementing programming um, and if they're each doing it slightly different or even if one person is doing it different, it's hard to rely on those data. Um, And some of the interventions that we implement, if if our staff are drifting, we're inviting harm. Right. Like if we're implementing extinction incorrectly, we could be hurting some people. So it's incumbent on us to I think say when you are training is when you should be designing your ongoing performance management system, because you're going to use some of the same materials, your procedural integrity check, but you should be taking a behavior analytic approach to kind of outlining your schedule. So if you are brand new to me and I just taught you how to, you know, I don't know, run a preference assessment my schedule of observing you is going to be pretty rich at first, because I want to know, was my training effective? And I will very clearly indicate that. Listen, Linda, I'm going to be like watching every preference assessment that you run for the first few days, not because I think you won't do it right. I just want to make sure that I trained you accurately and completely. Um, And then as the person demonstrates Accurate, high quality, sustained performance, you can start thinning out your schedule of review, but you then need to still have, you know, maybe I'm doing it once a month now or something like that. So the ideas for ongoing performance uh, monitoring that you are making sure that you are seeing people do the important things regularly enough to ensure that they're doing it accurately um, and that they are maintaining and generalizing. And that if there are any needs that are arising, you are able to quickly address it instead of waiting for that smoke to erupt into uh, a wildfire. And that is much more difficult to deal with. So, um, you know, the idea is to to be planful in your schedule of ongoing performance management.
1: I love that. It's you know, it's uh, much like when we move a skill to maintenance and generalization, we don't do a maintenance probe 15 times a day, we, but we might start off with twice a week mm-hmm. and then move to once a week, once every other week, um, once a month, thinning that out. And if performance isn't maintaining, we then reteach. That's right. And we don't like wait till the end of the month like let me have you fail five or six maintenance probes before I before I get to it. We use the immediate observation opportunity to give that support which then increases the likelihood that the next observation will be more Effective and meaningful,
0: yeah, Um, and you know, like, and it's not even just that we immediately reteach. I think we immediately evaluate because it could be that the materials are non-optimal, or the instructions need to be tweaked, or we didn't get the person's attention. But you're right; like, the idea is you catch it right then and you do the thing to support the the performer, which you know, a client or your staff. Um, You don't you don't wait. Uh, so I love that that message. Well and it,
1: it kind of leads, you know, you could ask yourself this question. Whatever this skill is, how long would I be comfortable with it being done poorly before I caught it? <laughs> and that kind of tells you what your at least initial schedule ought to be. And if the answer is like not at all, you know, like, let's say it's an extinction procedure or let's say it's a feeding procedure where a child could choke, like be there the first times and for many times until you're super confident. If it's something like, you know, restoring, clean up and putting things back after session so that the next guy has a a easier time getting ready for session I'm not saying that's not important. That is important. I do like a tidy workplace. But I but... know if you
0: go into the hospital. But... <laughs> no what's <one's laughs> going on. Real them. and tidy. <laughs>
1: exactly. So that's one way to think about it. Like if we if we formally asked ourselves that question, that's the risk we run. How long are you willing to take that risk? That should give you good information about what the initial uh, latency to that ongoing monitoring should be.
0: Yeah. Yep. I agree. And I think like with BST, not only do supervisors need to be engaging in ongoing performance monitoring of their trainees, they then need to be teaching their trainees how to engage in ongoing performance monitoring, probably using BST rationale, describe it, model it have them practice it and then engage in it. And then you need to really focus on cool. I'm glad that we've got that established, but what do you do when you do, um, identify that there is a performance issue. And, you know, I I think that the first thing you do is, you know, like respond in a way that seems appropriate for that context, because it may just be a reminder or reorganizing things a little bit. But if you've tried to move the needle once or twice and that's not happening, then I think you need a little bit more of a structured approach to what you are doing for your kind of performance management, right? For dealing Mm -hmm. with those performance issues that stick around a little bit longer. Yeah.
1: And, you know, Denny Reed talks about... These two important purposes of ongoing monitoring and performance management, one of which is to support effective performance by the people on your team. But the other, which is so important, is supporting job enjoyment. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so important for supervisors to really understand how important both of those parts are because if you think it's only about high performance and forget about the work enjoyment you're going to get turnover even Mm -hmm. if your people are performing well and that's going to make you cry even more (laughs) right like oh no my best people are leaving and they may be leaving because they're not getting enough social contact with a supervisor who's conveying that they value them and support them so that second thing that he's been talking about for decades and multiple editions of his books like that's that's the part of supervision that's burnout prevention Mm -hmm. it you know whatever the job is it's a hard job particularly direct services it's an effortful job. It's a hard job. There's a lot coming at you all the time and a lot of decisions. And having a supervisor that recognizes anytime I show up, I have two big buckets of purpose. Number one, to make sure performance is good. Number two, to make sure you enjoy your work. And we are more likely to enjoy a job that we do well and are successful at, But we also, a a part of that is just like, you know, how much praise is coming your way? How many smiles? How much camaraderie? Mm -hmm. You know, how much feeling connected to someone who is grateful for the fact that you're busting some butt doing this job and reconnecting to the bigger purpose of, you know, we're all doing our part to improve this human being's life and improve their ability to make the most of their life. So I think it's so important for supervisors to be knowledgeable about both parts of that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times what can make a job less enjoyable are barriers that have gotten introduced into the environment to doing the job well. Maybe it got more crowded, maybe the materials got changed, maybe the data collection system that was put in place got more complicated, which now makes it harder to both take accurate data and implement the program well. So some of that, you know, investigating what might lead to this performance problem and then doing the performance management is often about changing the work environment to make it an environment that is more conducive to effective performance. And it also might be retraining.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think training is part of the environment, right? Um, but you're right. And I think we frequently kind of lean mentalistic when it comes to staff performance issues. Oh, they don't get it. They're, they're lazy what have you. Um, And we forget that, you know, if we're not getting optimal performance, that performance isn't happening in a vacuum. It's happening in an environment that we helped create um, and that we can take a structured approach. So I personally really like to use the performance diagnostic checklist or the performance diagnostic checklist for human services uh, more specifically to help with that investigation and to help my trainees learn how to basically do a descriptive functional behavior assessment on performance problems right so what do i know about the environment what do i know about the training that was provided the materials learning history right it, exactly it's learning history and current context those are the two pieces besides genetics which we don't control um when it comes to people's behavior so um i think exposing ensuring that you that new supervisors know about a structured approach like using the PDCHS. And then that they teach that to their trainees. So you can, it's really great because like with BST, you could even use it with your trainee. Not that your trainee is having performance issues, but you could just say, here's this tool. We're going to pick something. We're going to go through it together as if you were X, Y, Z, and then you can give them the rationale, blah, 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 and then have them use it on other individuals or scenarios. Right. Um, So I love a structured tool because it helps me take a structured approach to teaching. When I don't get the optimal results, I can go back to the steps in a tool. Um, So, you know, I I think that's a great way to kind of do what you're talking about, which is slow down and uh, engage in a, a thoroughgoing assessment of the environmental barriers that are likely Uh, supporting the non-optimal performance um, or preventing a more optimal performance. Well, and I think what uh, I
1: I also really like that tool and I love even more that it brings the idea of functional assessment Mm -hmm. to staff behavior. That functional assessment is not what we do for client problem behavior. A functional assessment is an examination of the functional determinants of any behavior that should guide any efforts to change things, to change that behavior, whether it's a skill deficit or staff performance, or even an overall uh, system in your (laughs) human service organization. And so I think seeing this kind of tool, it it provides the opportunity not only to show them the tool and how to use it, but to talk about that we can be behavior analytic about everything. 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 And, And that's so much a part of what you're doing when you are training an aspiring behavior analyst. Yes. It's not just about teaching them some tools and some stuff to do. It is about transforming the way they examine the world around them. Yes. And the way they understand the world around them.
0: Yes. Illuminating every opportunity to bring the full benefit of our technology to everything we do. That's absolutely right. Which I kind of think is like mic drop. We're done. Mic drop. Okay. (laughs) Bye-bye. That's it for the lift. Well, I mean, I do think that takes us through the two topics that we really wanted to cover today. Um, the workbook has many more special topics. Um, I think the next episode will probably chat about month eight because we have some specific things that we want folks to do. The new cons- the new supervisor and the consulting supervisor, um, and then month 12, where you're kind of wrapping it up and also laying out your future performance development plan for the new supervisor. So I I guess we're at the point where we say goodbye to everybody and we'll see you next time. Shucks.
1: This was a great topic and (laughs) I hope you all enjoyed it as much as Tyra and I did. Goodbye and we'll see you next episode of The Lift.
0: Bye-bye everyone.